Thank you very much, Jean. Thank you all for coming. Uh, in, yes, the previous talk, uh, I actually want to talk to her afterwards because I have some questions. Uh, just a little, little bit about where you all are from. How many of you are associated with a medical school or teach in medicine, some way pre-med or something like that? Okay. Uh, how many of you teach uh, any kind of a teaching set, uh, setting? Okay. How many of you have ever been on a mission trip? Okay. And of those of you who have been on a mission trip, how many of you have been able to use your area of expertise in that mission setting? So quite a few of you have been able to do that. So maybe I don't need to give the talk. Uh, but anyway, just to let you know where I'm coming from, I'm from Iowa originally. I grew up on a farm. I actually went to veterinary school, practiced two years, and then went to medical school. I graduated in 1966, or 1965, and those of you who are older will remember that was just when the Vietnam War was really heating up. And I was a little bit older, so I thought I had escaped, but I didn't. And I ended up uh, going into the public health service and was assigned to the Peace Corps in Kenya for two years. Uh, when I finished that, I came back, did my residency in uh, uh, otolaryngology or ear, nose, and throat surgery. And uh, in 1973, I joined the faculty at OHSU here in Portland, Oregon. I took early retirement at the beginning of 1997 uh, and uh, took a position as visiting professor at the National University of Singapore. Uh, I've also been involved with a continuing medical dental education conference that is sponsored by the Christian Medical Dental Association every year. It alternates between Asia and Africa. And that experience with seeing missionaries, teaching missionaries, probably has had more to do with what I'm doing today than anything else. More recently, I've been involved with an uh, another part of CMDA that's called Medical Education International, and that's uh, kind of what I want to talk about today, and I represent them. So why would we want to share in an international setting our scientific education? Well, what I want to talk, uh, go, uh, talk about in this talk is how we can use education, a little bit about what the needs are, the opportunities, what you might need for preparation, and what some of the rewards are. So who do you think was the ultimate teacher? Great, right answer. Uh, he certainly left us that servant attitude, which I think is so important in teaching. Now, I, one of the other things I forgot to say at the beginning I meant to, in medicine, we always have to give a disclosure. Well, I'm prejudiced. Uh, my career was in medical education with students and residents. I'm from a medical background. So for those of you who aren't, aren't from medicine, uh, some of my examples will be from medicine. And I hope you'll forgive me for that. So I use as an example, uh, who did Jesus teach? Well, he taught the Pharisees and the lawyers. And they're kind of like faculty. You know, they don't really need it. Uh, they don't really want you. They know everything anyway. And then he had the disciples. And he was training them to replace him. And that's kind of the way we do with residents. We're training residents so that they could really take our place. And then he had the crowds, the medical students. Uh, they're more generic but you still have quite a bit of influence on them. And then, of course, he also taught one-on-one. -on -one. And we all remember this, the, after the resurrection when Mary Magdalene exclaimed to him and called him teacher. Now, John Patrick, who is a, a very popular speaker in CMDA circles, made the statement that a good teacher is someone who loves his subjects and loves his students. 
And I think, at least to a certain extent, that is true. Students recognize fairly quickly if uh, you don't like them or if you don't like your subject. And one of the things that I face when I'm trying to recruit people for MEI, a lot of people are reluctant to consider teaching. Say, well, I don't like public speaking. Well, I don't particularly like public speaking either. Uh, sometimes they'll say, well, I'm not sure how to prepare a lecture. Some lack self-confidence. And the one that really gets me is when they say, well, I don't want to teach it. I can do it faster myself. And there's a certain amount of that in medical schools even. Uh, and then sometimes you feel that students really don't appreciate your efforts. But so why be a teacher? Many of you in this audience are teachers. Well, we have an opportunity to build into the lives of others. Uh, we can share our experiences with others, particularly those of us who got a little gray hair, probably share more of our experiences than people want us to. Uh, I think the other thing that's important, particularly in an international setting, and one of the reasons that I like teaching overseas is that if I can teach somebody to do something, I leave something behind. If I just go in and do a bunch of cleft lips and cleft palates and leave, sure, I've helped those, but then there's nobody to do it after I leave. Now, whether we like it or not, we're all teachers. And any of you who've got kids know how that is. Uh, your kids are watching you. They model you. Uh, and it's always kind of disconcerting to see your kids use the same tone of voice as you do. So we can teach by the way we are example, by modeling, by the attitude that we have, uh, by influence, and also by demonstration. Now, do you want to be a positive or a negative influence? And I think one of the things that is really a great opportunity for us as Christians when we go overseas is that we have the potential for influencing a whole next generation when we teach younger people, like in our field with medical students. We may have some effect on the way medicine is practiced in that particular country for the next 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. Now, what are some of the needs? And I'm using it a medical example, and I'm limiting it to Africa just for the sake of time. Africa has 11% of the world's population, but it has 25% of the health burden. It has 3% of the world's health care workers, and it only uses 1% of the world's health care dollars. Now, I'm sure you've all figured out very quickly there are a lot of people in Africa who don't get medical care or don't get very good medical care. It's estimated that about 40% of the hospitals in sub-Saharan Africa, leaving out South Africa, are mission hospitals, and about 60% of the medical care given in those countries uh, is given in uh, mission hospitals. So why is there such a shortage of doctors in Africa? Well, one of the reasons, they do have medical schools, but in some countries, as much as 75% of the doctors leave and go to North America or Europe. Same thing is true of nurses and pharmacists. And I, I have a problem with the ethics of us going and actively recruiting from those countries for people to come into our healthcare system. We're robbing them. So how can science education be translated to missions? Well, I think always if you teach somebody to do something and then they teach 10 more people and 10 more people, you're going to multiply your hands, your influence, we can demonstrate the love of Christ, and again, in medicine, the way, we treat, the way we treat our students, the way we treat our peers and interact with them, uh, our, the way we do patient care, how we treat others, patients, nurses, and even the cleaners. Uh, how you treat them will be watched. Now, a few years ago, the church that we go to in Portland has an annual 
missions conference. And we had a, the main speaker one year was the president of a seminary from Beirut, Lebanon. He made a statement that has really stuck with me. He said, we don't need more missionaries. We need more teachers. And his reason was that he said the nationals will do a much better job of reaching people for Christ because they know the language, they know the culture, but what they need help with is how to go about doing that. I think the same thing applies to us in medicine and in science that uh, if we can train these people, they can then train the people in their own country. Now, sometimes I get again in medicine, well, uh, you know, why not just go to a mission hospital and do straight mission care rather than bother to teach? Rewards are more tangible. You get instant gratification. Uh, but what happens when you leave? The other thing that's nice, at least in medicine, uh, you can do both. Not only do I get involved with, uh, with uh, medical care when I go overseas and teach, but I, can, I, but I also get to teach at the same time. And one of the reasons for doing this is missions is an iffy business. If you're the only person in your field, what happens when you go on furlough? What happens when you leave the field or retire? What happens if your visa uh, is not uh, renewed? What if there's civil unrest and you have to leave? I think a good example of this is in China when all the missionaries had to leave at the end of the 40s, early 50s, and everybody wondered what would happen to the church. And when they went back, actually in the 70s, the church had actually grown. Now, one of the things is that closed countries, particularly Muslim countries, places like China, they may not welcome pastors or church planters, but they're willing to have people come in who are willing to teach and are willing to share, their knowledge, share your knowledge with them. I look at trips that are one to four weeks as being short term, uh, two to 12 months being medium term, long term one year. And then occasionally there are opportunities to go as an invited speaker. In this particular photograph, Dr. Middleton and myself went to semi-Kazakhstan a couple years ago. We were invited to speak at a conference on the long-term effects of radiation exposure. Neither one of us were experts on this, but we patted their international faculty. But what was interesting, the main speaker at this conference was a geology professor from the University of Nevada. Why did they invite him? He was a hydrologist because all of the atomic testing done by the Russians was done 90 miles from this city. And they had a lot of problems with radiation exposure. And that was his area of expertise. He had worked in Nevada with all of our underground testing, and he knew what happened when radiation got into the, into the groundwater. And so that's the reason they had it. So one of the things that I would encourage you, if you go to an international meeting, Get to know some of the people from other countries, and I think if you find that if you talk to them, you may get an invitation to come and speak. You're always looking for people from overseas. Other opportunities uh, in medicine are basic science, and I, I talked to the board the other night, I was telling them a little bit about what MEI does, and I have to clarify what basic science means to those of us in medicine. That means the people who teach in the preclinical areas, like anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, and that type of thing. I think some of you, basic science means more bench research. So when I say basic science here, I'm talking more about preclinical medicine. Now, we are getting, in MEI, we are getting more and more requests for people to come and to teach in those areas, in clinical medicine, uh, I'm sorry, in basic sciences, 
in anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, and things like that. Also, we were getting requests for researchers because many of these countries, uh, a person who wants to do training, like I have in a specialty, they actually have to get a master's and a PhD degree. And so they're looking for people to come and help them set up research projects. And you have to be very creative because as Annie already mentioned, they don't have those fancy microscopes and centrifuges. So how do you help them set up a research project with a limited budget? And they're really looking a lot for collaborative type of things that they can do. And then obviously there are places uh, that we go that we teach clinically, we teach students, residents, uh, specialties, family practice, etc. Now another opportunity that's come along are newer medical schools. I visited this medical school about three years ago. They had not even graduated their first class. But they didn't really have anybody in their medical school that was trained to teach the preclinical years. And they had a limited number of clinical people. And they wanted help coming to help teach that type of thing. Another one that we had requested we've had just recently is Liberia. The medical school in Liberia was shut down about 15 or 20 years ago with all the unrest. And they want to start that up again. And it's interesting, I think the president, or at least her assistant of Liberia, is a Christian. And they approached the Christian Medical Dental Association and also the Mercy Ship, which is, is there now, for help in getting their medical school started up again. Now, another school that I went to in Indonesia, thinking they would like to have a clinical team come, when I visited, I uh, visited with the dean and the clinical faculty, they had been mandated by the government to start teaching problem-based learning. But the government hadn't told them how to do it. And so they wanted somebody to come and help them start with their problem-based learning. We're getting requests for other paramedical fields. Now, I know a lot of you are in other fields like engineering, science, law, etc. And I don't know what the opportunities that there are, but I know they're out there. Particularly in the area of universities, I'm sure there are areas that you could find, and it's a matter of looking for them. After talking to the ASA board the other night, we're hoping that maybe as we go on some of our medical teams, if we go to a medical school that's in a university, we might be able to inquire and find some opportunities for people from ASA where they might be able to teach. So when should you do this? As a student? Well, I think it's a good opportunity for students. A lot of times universities will have projects where they can go. As a resident, uh, we do take residents in uh, some of our uh, trips. Uh, and this was a trip that I took with a group out of Oklahoma. Uh, and we were, again, it was in Kazakhstan where the residents really did a lot of the teaching. One of the things about it is that residents can hook up with the students and the younger faculty much better than somebody like me. Uh, I'm a professor, and therefore, they're not used to talking to professors. Plus, the residents, they're at 10 o'clock at night. They're ready to go out and have coffee and go to a restaurant. I'm ready to go to bed. Uh, maybe in your, early in your career, like my friend from Singapore, uh, mid-career, this is Chris Jenkins, who spends four months of his year in Central Asia teaching family practice. And then at the end of the career, you know, those of us who are retired probably have more time to take trips. And certainly what I've done in the last 11 years, having been in Singapore, working in Singapore and with MEI, has probably been the most rewarding part of my career. Uh, preparation. Well, in medicine, uh, I tell people that if they're going to do clinical uh, teaching, they certainly need to be board certified. But also a master's or a PhD degree. And an academic position helps. 
particularly in Asia, in a lot of countries, uh, having being a assistant, associate, or full professor really helps your getting into an area. Now, in medicine, most of us don't take education courses, so I encourage people to take education courses and then to practice their teaching. Some of the cultural considerations, are you want to go short-term versus long-term is a decision you have to make. Also have to remember, some of these countries, you may be viewed as a threat. Uh, you may have more knowledge. You may know how to use the robotic microscope, and they've never even seen one. So you have to be a little bit careful what you say. In Singapore, uh, I, was, I could only practice at the university hospital. And one of the reasons they didn't want me to go downtown in private practice, because as they would say, you're eating out of my rice bowl. I'd be taking some of their private patient income. But there is a certain cachet of being a foreigner. When I was on sabbatical in Africa, sometimes I could see out in the clinic they were, the patients wanting to get in the line, assuming the foreigner may knew, know a little bit more than their own people. So you have to be careful because, again, particularly in Asia, losing face is a big thing, and you don't want to do that. You need visas, medical licenses, and we already mentioned about how teaching may be acceptable in closed countries. How can we overcome some of the po possible negative impressions? I think when we go to these countries, particularly the developing countries, and see how much we have compared to what they have, we need to be thankful, we need to be willing to share. And one of the things is we have to be very careful and not have that superiority complex that, you know, this is the way we do it in America, and I'm going to show you how to do it. You need to be sensitive to your culture, to, the, to your host, if they have certain taboos. And up in the right-hand corner uh, was in Singapore. We were actually teaching how to do incisions and suturing and flaps, et cetera. And we used pig's feet, or as the Singaporeans say, pig strotters. Uh, and when I first got there, we actually put on a course, invited people from Malaysia and Indonesia. I didn't even think about it, but apparently uh, we had about four or five people from Indonesia who were Muslims. And they walked in the room, they saw and smelt the pig's feet, and physically became ill and had to go to the restroom and throw up. We weren't very culturally sensitive uh, and didn't even think about it. But in the lower picture, again, I'm in a, in, back in Kazakhstan, I'm in a, uh, in a Muslim country, and Chris found out that what was acceptable was to use cow's tongues. Uh, it wasn't pork, and so they could touch the cow's tongues. It was no problem, and it actually worked out pretty good for doing sutures. You need to respect government prohibitions, uh, like China is a good example of this. You're not, uh, you're not allowed to go out and actively proselytize, but if somebody asks you a question about your faith, you can talk to them about that. You need to be sensitive to their medical knowledge. Sometimes it will seem really outdated, but they have outdated texts in many of these countries. It is improving, but it still is way behind what we would have. Sometimes it's, they haven't been taught very well, may have lack of experience, may not have very good equipment. This is, these two pictures are taken when I was in Moldova, and it looks really archaic to me, uh, but it worked for them. Uh, they were treating, the upper one is, uh, he was being treated for frontal sinusitis, and the lower one was a fractured nose that they were holding in place. So you have to be careful not be critical of their techniques. You need to develop a trust, be truthful with them. And it does take a while for acceptance to come. And one of the things about going on a trips like this, if you can go back the next year, the next year, you will find that it will be much more rewarding, not only for you, but also your possibilities of being able to witness as a Christian. We should have a servant attitude. 
uh, learn to interact with students in the classroom and with their patient care, encourage questions. One of the other things is that most of these countries, uh, like this particular school, again, back in Kazakhstan, they had 500 to 600 students a year. They had a limited number of clinical faculty. So what would happen was you might have 40 to 50 students following one professor making rounds. The students never got to touch a patient. Uh, and if you're at the back of the row at 50 students, you probably didn't even hear much. And so their hands-on experience is really limited. And so that's one of the things that uh, they really appreciate. And here I'm just demonstrating to one of these students on how to clean wax out of an ear, something very simple. Uh, again, in medicine, we try to teach them to do a methodical approach. Because they do rote memory, a lot of it's just memorization, and they have a hard time translating that over to actual medical care. Uh, for the residents, encourage them to ask questions. Sometimes they feel that they lose face if they ask questions, and so you've got to encourage them to do that. Again, that's particularly true in Asia. One of the things is to make friends of the students, the residents, the faculty outside the hospital. This is, a, this is an area where I go in China and do cleft lips and cleft palate. It's a small hospital, but the lady on the far right uh, was one of the faculty members invited us to her home for uh, a very, very good Chinese meal. And in doing this, we actually had an opportunity to share. I did because I didn't speak Mandarin, but my Singapore friends uh, could do that. Plus, what we left behind there was there was a full-time missionary who could follow up on the contacts, and we helped her make contacts. Uh, just some of the rewards. In the upper left-hand corner is the smile of a mother after I repaired this little child's cleft lip. The little boy on the, uh, on the right brought me three sacks of a very special rice after I'd done his palate. The gentleman at the bottom, I repaired his son's cleft lip, and then I was about two years later and did the palate, and he asked if we could do something about that scar that he'd had since he was two years of age. And I always remember when we went out after the surgery to talk to his mother, his mother was so thankful. She says, oh, you've repaired my grandson, and now you've helped my son. So our opportunities are to show grace, show the love of Christ. I think you'll find that the younger people, students and residents, at least in medicine, are probably going to be more likely to ask you questions than the faculty. But you never know. We have the potential opportunity of influencing the next generation of physicians. Uh, and one of the things that I think is very important, no matter what field you're in in teaching, is to model teaching as a worthwhile career. When I first went to Singapore, uh, actually it was when I went there on sabbatical before I went there full time. I'd been there about a month, and one of the residents I was working with knew that I'd spent my career at the medical school. And that just doesn't happen in Singapore. There they they work for three or four years after they finish their training, and then they're out in private practice to make money. So Roland said to me, he says, Prof, why, why did you do that? And I said, well, Roland, I said, don't the Chinese respect teachers? He says, well, sure, he says, but if it comes to being respected as a teacher versus making money, you take money every time. And so that was sort of their attitude, that money was more important. So what can you do? Well, I'd encourage you to try a short-term trip. Uh, usually probably the first time you'll want to go with somebody, an established group or somebody who's gone before. Do you need to be culturally sensitive? Ask a lot of questions. Do a lot of listening. Don't pass judgment. Be flexible. Adapt to the unexpected. And this photograph shows one of my colleagues in Singapore and myself were invited 
to the zoo in Singapore to take care of this chimpanzee who had a chronic draining ear they couldn't get to clear up. So where can you look for opportunities? Well, Medical Education International, we do mainly medical teaching teams. They're short-term, one to two weeks. I actually have brochures back on the table uh, if you'd like to take them for Medical Education International. There are some of my own personal cards. If any of you are interested, feel free to contact me. There's another organization that I have found about, out about. It's the International Institute for Christian Studies. They do more long-term trips. Uh, they place teachers in universities overseas. And there's also a brochure and their newsletter back there, which I think, even if you're not particularly interested, you find the newsletter interesting. Uh, you might check with your church mission board. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Fulbright Scholarship. I had a friend who was in Moldova with me that uh, uh, actually had a, uh, uh, is going back to Moldova on a Fulbright Scholarship. And then university exchange programs, personal contacts. Harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Our motive should be to love Christ. And I always like this verse, particularly in closed countries, that we need to be prepared to give an answer. But we need to do it with gentleness and respect. I apologize. I, didn't, I wasn't watching you. <laughs> Thank you. Sometimes they can come over for short visits, and uh, we're just in the phase of that now with Mongolia. And uh, had one, we're going to get a couple more coming. And that's a longer time. It's a, you have to be willing to do it. I mean, they stay in your home. They don't have any money. They go with you everywhere you go. They go with you to church. They go with you to Bible study. Uh, but that, I think, is uh, probably more effective in terms of you know some of the exchanges in terms of uh, uh, the witness. You know, I think that's right. Dr. Holman's actually gone with MEI to Mongolia, and we've had other people as well as him who have had people, you make contacts, and then they come over here, and you can, uh, and a lot of times, as he said, they stay in your home. I have a friend that's gone to Vietnam with another organization who's done the same thing, and has had several people in his home over the years, and some of them actually have become Christians through that witness. And uh, if I could say one other thing, one thing you're talking about bringing up the subject that Ann was saying is so hard to do, all of a sudden, you're involved in this. And it's just, you're going to Mongolia to teach cardiology? You know, and all of a sudden, they have this interest in, I was really surprised, too, because most of what I do, I already have a full day anyway. I don't have time to take a guest around and try to teach them a lot of things. They could come to the conferences that we had and things for the residents. But the, the technicians and the other people, to see them pick up the mission, so to speak, was kind of fun. Now, some yeah. of them are believers, some of them aren't, but teach them how to do echo better, teach them how to do some of these other things that, uh, so then it becomes kind of a whole university, and then you're starting to ask, why are we doing this? And it's always delicate in a secular institution. Yeah. However, um, mostly everyone comes out of the positive. Thank you. Well, officially the session is over, but unofficially, okay. I think all of our speakers are still here, so if others have questions, I'd